Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight-lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. Welcome to another episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, and I am not even sure how to quite introduce the conversation that I'm going to have today with our guest, Shiloh Bird. It is super fun, and we go all over the place in the best way possible. Uh, We talk about her career and how it got kickstarted as a pattern maker. She wound up opening up her own design studio, and she talks a lot about the mistakes and the successes and the things that she learned along the way from going from a permalancer in a freelancer in the fashion industry to running her own design studio, what it took to juggle that. And then we go and we talk about a lot of fun, nerdy stuff on pattern making and fitting and what that means, whether you're working in the industry, you're just trying to buy clothes that fit, you're trying to spot where there's fit issues, whether you're a technical designer or that's your role, or maybe you're kickstarting your own brand and you have some samples and they're not quite fitting right. Um, We talk about some of the ways you can go through figuring out where is the fit issue happening and some of the basic things you want to look for to make sure that your garments fit really well. Um, It was a super, super fun conversation. Shiloh is amazing and a really, really great gal. And I know you guys are going to love everything that we chat about in this conversation. Now, before we get to the interview, as always, I will remind you guys that SFD is way more than a podcast. We have tons of free resources on things like Illustrator, Tech Packs, Portfolios, Freelancing, Landing Your Dream Job, and so much more. And I want to make sure that I can get those all to you. The best way to do that is to head on over to SoHeidi.com slash email and sign up for the email list. It's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com slash email. And I will give you all my best resources absolutely free. Uh, beyond that, if you're not up for the email or you just want to say hi on Instagram, I'm also pretty active over there. It is as well at so Heidi. So follow me on Instagram, say hi. I would love to connect with you and see what you're working on. Now, let's jump into the interview with Shiloh. As always, you can scroll down to access the show notes for any of the links and resources mentioned. And here we go. Welcome to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, Shiloh. Can you please uh, start by introducing yourself and letting everyone know who you are and what you do in the fashion industry? Hi. So thanks for having me. My name is Shiloh Bird. I do kind of a lot of things. So uh, by training and trade, I'm a fashion industry pattern maker, specifically working in the elevated sectors of the industry, so the luxury and contemporary markets. Um, But in reality... Oh man, I do a lot of things. I do basically full product development and even now full package production, primarily for mid, mid-level and l- smaller brands. So established brands that are happening, but maybe that don't have huge staffs, all the way down to startups run by rookies who have no idea what they're doing. But again, specifically in the luxury and elevated sector of the fashion industry, primarily women's wear, but I do a fair bit of men's wear as well, actually. Okay. 
I love so. it. So fairly niche, but as you, you define yourself niche and then it grows from there and you always wind up yeah. putting people on the edges. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so where, where did your fashion career start? Did you go to fashion school? Yes. So my fashion career started, well, I grew up in the business. My mother's a custom uh, bridal dressmaker. Okay. I've never, I have no memory of not knowing how to sew. Like I have very clear <laughs> memories of being, you know, like first grade, second grade and sewing alone in my bedroom and pulling wow. up the bobbin thread successfully and, you know, <laughs> needles and scissors and in retrospect, yikes, but I was completely fine and I never hurt myself. Yeah. So I guess it was fine. Um, but yeah, I did grow up in like a sewing workshop essentially. And then, um, yeah, swore I was never going to work in the industry, worked in a different industry straight out of high school, went to college and worked in a different industry straight out of college, hated it. And then within two years decided I'm going to fashion school. So I moved to New York and I went to FIT and I studied pattern making and technical design. So specifically I did not study design. I knew I didn't want to be a creative designer. Yeah. Um, I really love the, like the puzzle aspect of pattern making. Yeah. I still do. I still love talking shop about pattern making. I wish pattern making was more of my, my actual day-to-day work. I do a fair bit of it, but there's so much, there's so many other things that I do now, but, um, but yeah, so I studied pattern making at Fashion Institute of Technology, which is a fantastic school, especially for the nuts and bolts technical stuff of fashion. And yeah, lived in New York. So I spent, oh, 10 years essentially in the New York industry. Um, there was a couple of dead years because of the recession. And then two and a half years ago, I moved to Los Angeles and I've been working in Los Angeles ever since. Okay. Why, when you were growing up, did you swear you would never work in the fashion industry? I mean, honestly, it was mostly childish stuff. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> like, my mom is a real, like, ruffles and Victorian corsetry horse girl, and I'm like, oh, rock and contemporary art. So <laughs> I just I just had this really different idea of what the fashion industry was. And it was primarily, you know, custom bridal. That was like very sweet. Yeah. And that is just not my thing at all. Okay. Um, ironically, I have worked for a very famous bridal brand. <laughs> I, did, I did their runway collection though. I didn't do their bridal, but, um, my mom was thrilled. Uh, but yeah, I mean, mostly I just wasn't interested in that. Also because my mom is a dressmaker, you know, dressmaker is a very different thing. So I work in, in the, in the, part of the industry that's supporting fashion for production, you know, for mass production. Whereas what my mother does is, is very, very custom. It's very high touch and it's very dealing, it's dealing with a very difficult clientele and spending a lot of hours on the sewing machine. I do yeah. like to sew, but at the same time, I just, you know, I saw what she was doing and I was like, Oh God, that sounds awful. Yeah. So sorry, mom. She's uh. definitely going to call me about that. <laughs> <laughs> I still love you a lot. Um, <laughs> And so what was your brief stint in a different career? You said you went to high school, high school, didn't work in fashion, went to college, didn't work in fashion, and then wound up going back. What did you do in the meantime? Out of curiosity. I, <laughs> this is a funny story. I actually was an auto mechanic. So I went what? to, yep, I went to a community college and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And a friend of mine um, was in the auto repair department and I had this really crappy van and the transmission was going out and I couldn't afford to replace it. I just lived in a small town. It wasn't that big of a deal if it died, but yeah. you know, of course I wanted my van to work. 
And she told me, oh, well, if you take the Automotive 101 class as an elective, then you'll technically be part of the program for that semester. And so you can get the upperclassmen in the transmission class to fix your transmission for the cost of parts. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. I'm totally going to do that because I also want to know how to change my own oil and stuff. Like that doesn't sound like bad information to have. No. And so, yeah, I took the one-on-one class and I loved it. Turns out I love technical problem solving. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I went all the way through the, I mean, it was just a community college auto, you know, auto program. And so I did that and then, you know, I ended up buying like an old 1950s car and was like, oh my gosh, this is so fun, this and that. And yeah, I just had a really great time um, working on cars and talking shop with my friends. And, you know, it's project-based work is so satisfying because you start a thing, you do a thing, and then it's done. And you're like, look at the thing. Yeah. It didn't work and now it works. Wow. And so, yeah, I loved it. And then I went and got a job out of school. I started working in, um, well, I'm from the Pacific Northwest. So at first I was working at Land Rover Jaguar, um, Seattle. And then later I ended up moving to Portland, Oregon. Uh-huh. And I worked for Land Rover or, um, Portland as well. Um, so yeah, I was working there and, you know, it's just a really weird environment for a 19 year old girl. So yeah. I imagine everyone was, everyone was lovely, but like you have to get up really early. The shops are cold cause they're open. Um, there's a lot of chemical exposure. And while I didn't have like terrible problems with misogyny, there was definitely comments. And sure. I, I mean, I was definitely a kind of an idiot at that age and deserved some of it. And yeah, it just, I found it to be a little bit too difficult and I was getting paid really well compared to my friends at that age. And I was just, I don't know, I freaked out and I was like, I'm staring down the barrel of 40 years of being unhappy and doing this. Like, no, thanks. I like the work. I don't like the career. And yeah, so that's when, what, basically what I did at that point is I went, I quit my job and I got like five part-time jobs (laughs) to kind of assess what I wanted to do. And one of them was in a, um, tailor shop doing ladies alterations because again, I've always known how to sew. Yeah. And that was fine. But what was really exciting about working in the tailoring shop was we had a master tailor who actually made suits. And so if you've ever seen a tailor work, which you haven't, you absolutely have to go on YouTube right now and look up tailors making suits. It's incredible. Well, it's incredible if you like stuff like I like, but, um, (laughs) But what they do, they don't have a pattern. They just roll out the cloth and then they use chalk and they just draw the pattern right on the cloth in chalk. Like totally freehand. Freehand, completely freehand. And then they just cut it. And oftentimes this is very expensive cloth. Yeah. Um, It's incredible. I mean, granted, most tailors make the same suit over and over and over. So they really know what they're doing. But there's different Um, measurements for the body and like that requires a lot of precision to just freehand this thing. Absolutely. And then also like, you know, especially in the world of men's tailoring, which is what I was observing, um, a lot of men's tailoring is built around hiding parts of the body or reshaping parts of the body. Mm. So, you know, making a man with a gut look like he's slimmer or making Mm -hmm. a man with a narrow shoulder look like he's wider or Mm -hmm. whatever. And yeah, those are all things that happen in the cloth from the tailor's mind. It's in chalk. It's just absolutely incredible. So essentially I was working in a space where I was 
right next to where the tailor was working. And I started asking him questions about, you know, like darts and stuff. Like, how does that work? Cause you know, I'd sewn all my life, but I just, you know, was working from patterns that either my mother made or, you know, commercial store-bought patterns, like, yeah. you know, the big four or whatever. And, um, yeah, so I was just really like, how, what is, what is that, you know, if you cut it like that and it's too big, won't it do this or that? And also in tailoring, there's tons and tons of like shrinking the wool and molding the wool and stuff. And yeah, it was just a really, really fascinating experience. He started teaching me about suppressive cut. So that's the act of, you know, cutting things away, be it darts or, or shaping or whatever grain behavior, really, really basic stuff. And at one point he told me, you're asking all the right questions. You've got a tailor or a pattern maker's mind, but you don't have a tailor's patience. Mm. You should go study pattern making. And so essentially, um, most pattern making is taught in community colleges all over the United States. Seattle has one of, it has an excellent program. Uh, I think it's Seattle Central Community College has an excellent pattern making program. So I went up there and I visited and I was like, yeah, this is really cool. But I don't know, you know, I'm changing my life right now. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'd already lived in Seattle and um, I went on a week-long trip to San Francisco and spent a bunch of time with friends. And then I went on a week-long trip to New York and I was like, yes, this is the fun life I want. And so I applied to to go to FIT. Um, The thing is, is that you, a lot of people think about FIT as like this, you know, top tier, highly competitive American fashion school. And it is if you're trying to study fashion, but if you're trying to study almost anything else, it's actually really easy to get into. It's a state school. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I applied. Well, at the time it was called pattern making. Now the degree is called technical design. They actually switched names while I was in the program. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I applied for the pattern making course and also, yeah, I think now pattern making is just a certificate and then it was a degree. But anyway, so I applied for it and was accepted. I moved to New York. I immediately deferred for a year so that I could um, get my residency and pay New York State tuition. Oh, yeah, because it's quite a price difference. It is quite a price difference, especially, yeah. you know, at 23 and I've already got, you know, in retrospect, a very nominal amount of student loans to pay off. But yeah. I had some student loans to pay off from the first time I went to school. Okay. Where, where um, are we in time? What year is this roughly? Oh gosh. Uh, it would have been like 2005. Okay. Just so. roughly. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was in my mid twenties at that okay. point. I'm, I'm 41 now. Okay. And so I was in my mid twenties cause it was, yeah, like I said, it was my second career. Okay. So yeah, I, um, I did my degree at FIT. It was just a two year degree. Um, and then pretty much immediately I actually started working while I was still in my last term as a pattern maker. Um, I got a job through an agency, um, as a freelancer, which in fashion is really just temp. A permalancer. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I spent the first five years of my career as a permalancer, essentially all in this one agency. Um, getting horribly underpaid, but I was fine with it because I was getting to work in a bunch of really exciting brands. And, um, and also it's just really hard. If you want to be a pattern maker, it's very hard to get your first job because nobody wants to hire somebody who's both slow, inexperienced and expensive. So, (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, it's really hard to get an early career pattern making job. And usually what you end up doing is you end up getting a job where you're just like digitizing patterns all day or, you know, if you're lucky trimming someone's hand cut patterns. Um, but yeah, I was pretty fortunate. I worked in a ton of different categories, a ton of different companies, just, you know, doing these contracts that ranged from, I think the longest one was six months to, you know, a couple of days. Most of them were like three or four months long, you know, Mm -hmm. as, as you know, the New York industry, while there is some mass market there, it's primarily, um, you know, the New York industry is primarily focused on like the runway seasons. Yeah. And so generally speaking, there's four collections a year. And so it's, you know, bringing you in right before, you know, the preparation for those collections. Right. So yeah, worked in New York as a freelancer, um, a permalancer for five years. And what ended up happening was after a couple of years, I started getting clients on the side. So I would go into a brand and I would, you know, be the junior pattern maker doing whatever. But then I would meet people who worked inside the brand and they were like, Hey, do you work freelance on the side? Like I want to start a sundress brand or I want to start a swimsuit brand. The employees were starting their own thing and then knew you from working with you and then just asked if you could do something for them on the side. Exactly. Because ah. I mean, it turns out designers all want to be designers. Yes, and yes, oftentimes yes. Sometimes designers who are in the trenches at, you know, a big brand don't actually get to do much design. Or if they do, it's not very exciting because it's not their creative, you know, concept or whatever. Right. And obviously they don't have the skills. I mean, maybe they have some basic skills, but they don't have the really refined skills to do the pattern making. Right. Or they just don't want to. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> There's only so much time. Right. There is only so much time. I mean, it's been my experience that, you know, different fashion design programs teach different amounts of pattern making. But the For only sure. reason why fashion design programs teach pattern making at all is because designers need to know how to do enough to do their homework. But designers in the field don't actually make patterns. Like, I know. It's vi- very rare. Very big misconception about what goes on in reality for people who don't work in the industry. (laughs) Right. They also don't sew. I mean, honestly, I don't sew much. Yeah. (laughs) I drape a lot. I draft a lot. I work on a computer a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And then I very politely hand things over to incredibly talented sample makers. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so what started happening was I started getting all of these just, you know, here and there, but like frequently enough inquiries on, you know, just do this one project for me. I just want to, you know, knock off this jacket that were, you know, it was made terribly and I just love the shape and the fit. So let's remake this or I'm starting this little line and da, 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 da. So I started getting all this little freelance and it really started adding up and I was so excited. And at the same time, I was, you know, I was about five years deep into my career, still as a permalancer, still with the same agency, still getting like not much money for it. Um, and knowing that my boss was charging quite a lot for me yeah. because that's how it works. And that's yeah. fine. And like I was willing to deal with that because it was the beginning of my career. And, you know, I get to I get to say that I worked at this brand and that brand on my resume even though I never actually worked directly for them, but you know, I worked inside them and I yeah. contributed and to the And you did the patterns. Yeah. That's exactly. totally validating. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I started focusing more on the outside work because I was getting so much of it and it was actually paying better than <sighs> the permalance work. In retrospect, it wasn't paying better. It just felt like it was paying better because I didn't realize I had to pay taxes on it. Yep. I did sort that mess out later, <laughs> but... Um. Yeah, so like, wait, can you talk about that for a minute? Because um, a lot of people listening are interested 
in freelancing. And I think that pricing, especially at the beginning, um, and the majority of my career was freelancing, like true freelancing, mm-hmm. not permalancer, um, like contract work. So can you talk a little bit about like how you kind of even got your feet wet with like, well, how much, like you said, okay, it looks on paper, I'm making more. Um, how did you even figure out what to charge those people? And then what did you figure out afterwards where you were like, oh God, I actually didn't make any money because I had to pay taxes. Like, can you talk a little bit about that specific experience? Yeah. So at first I absolutely didn't charge enough. Um, I just guessed I made up prices based on, I don't know, a twinkle in my eye. What sounded good. really had no criteria, (laughs) really had no criteria. Basically trying to think of a price that sounds like enough money that it's worth it for me to do, but low enough that they might actually say yes. Yes. Um, which is, I think what everyone does for the most part. Totally. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's unicorns out there that actually like go ask other freelancers, Hey, what do you charge? Um, or, you know, do some sort of research, research, like, for example, listen to a podcast like this one, where people <laughs> yeah. talk about these things all the time. Yeah. Uh, but no, I just completely made it up and it was way too low. And um, it was based on nothing. It was honestly based on nothing. Um, as I went, I also had this idea, though, in my mind, sorry, I'm skipping around. No, it's fine. I also had this idea in my mind, though, that like, I was like, as I was pricing people, I was like, you know, I can't charge them for my actual hours because I'm not a senior pattern maker. I'm not like, Mm. you know, the old lady at the back of the factory who's just so incredible, who can just whip it out. And it Mm -hmm. looks amazing on first proto Mm -hmm. and like, just, you know, there's always that lady and I can't charge hourly because I'm not her. But at the same time, my client shouldn't have to pay for the fact that like, I am not her, like, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm charging what she's charging, not by a long shot, but like, you know, if a pattern that takes an average pattern maker two hours to make takes me all day to make, that's my problem. That's not my client's problem. And that's my problem specifically because I'm still learning the ropes of this job. Yeah. Um, and like, I'm learning, like no one's ever asked me to make a pleated pant before. Oh shit. How long does it take? Yeah. Um, So maybe longer than I expected. And so, yeah, I had that in mind as well, where like, I need to figure out like what fair prices are, but if it takes me longer because of some gap in my knowledge, that can't be my client's problem. Right. They can't, they can't pay for your learning curve. No. And it's unfair to ask them to. Yeah. So, yeah. So at first I just completely made prices up, but then what ended up happening was with pricing is I just... Um, well, so let me back up a little. So I'll get back to the the pricing question, but what ended up happening is that, you know, I was taking all the side freelance and it, it, to me, it felt like it was paying better than the permalance. And so I ended up opening a, or actually renting a small studio space in like an artist loft building, um, as a workspace, because of course I lived in New York in a tiny, tiny fifth floor, you know, walk up apartment and had absolutely no space to work at home. Yeah. And I could, I continue to take classes at FIT one for just, you know, fulfillment sake, but two, because if you're a student there in any capacity at all, you can use the facilities. And so I would take my freelance work there and use their big <laughs> tables and their industrial yes. sewing machines. It was yeah. great. Yeah. Really good plan. Definitely recommend it. This is like a um, transmission story, just a different flavor. <laughs> right. <I guess> so <laughs> I've got habits. 
Um, I love so, them. Yeah, I ended up <laughs> renting. So my husband's an artist and he had a studio in this building and they had this little tiny room that was available for a price that I could afford. And yeah, so I rented this little room and started making patterns out of it. And then it kind of accidentally, I, I had a business. It wasn't just <laughs> me as a pattern maker. It was like a studio because then I hired some sample makers to work with me and you know, just come in on a freelance basis. And, and then, yeah, I was like, oh, wow, I have, I should present this as a business and not just me, because then that'll be more legit and people will be more willing to work with me, which I now know is actually not true. A lot of brands are very happy to work with just some random freelancers in the world that they found that they like the work of, but I was really concerned with like legitimacy and stuff. And so, um, so yeah, I ended up starting Shiloh Bird Studio, which was a, essentially a small, factory that I owned for about five years that was um, pattern making, product development, and small run production. At at its peak, that's what it was. But at first, it was just me pattern making in a room with a couple of freelance sewers. Okay, but you guys um, would actually do the production, like 20 pieces or something like yeah. that? Okay. Yeah, no more than 50. 50, okay. Um, but there's a lot of brands that, you know, just need, you know, 20 or 50. Yeah, 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 yeah. or five even, or yeah. just they want two of each size to fulfill their website. That way they can ship an order if somebody actually clicks by. Right. Um, but they don't really have the money to pay for the goods and the sewing on, you know, proper production. Right. But anyways, so I ended up starting this business, basically just grown out of a freelance practice that was too big for me to handle. Okay. Because as you know, like in the freelance world, you never say no. You get freelancers disease where you're always saying yes. <laughs> I still have it. Oh Were you still God, doing still the, the permalance work? I was, and I was bartending because oh I was only God. getting paid like 12 to 15 bucks an hour as a, as a permalancer. Oh my gosh. So, okay. Yeah. I bartended solidly eight years into my fashion career. Oh my gosh. Um, but bartending pays really well and it's super flexible and you know, who needs sleep? I was young. Wow. <laughs> so wait, you're, you're permalancing when the permalancing was like 40 hours a week. Yep. Nine to okay. five. And then bartending and then running Shiloh Bird Studio on the side with yeah. like a team of people. And you're like, oh, my God. Well, by the time I got to the point where I had actual employees, yeah. I was not permalancing at all anymore. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. So permalancing dropped out first. And I actually okay. kept bartending the longest because, <laughs> I mean, I mean, certain it's bartending like jobs. Cash. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, three to six hundred dollars a night. I actually don't. I've not- never worked as a bartender, but um, I, I worked in a deli making sandwiches. Mm-hmm. Ironically called Heidi's Deli. Fun <laughs> trivia there. But um, yeah, okay. So okay, so you're pulling like three to six hundred bucks cash, or maybe not always cash. I don't know what the yeah. under the table legitimacy is. We don't talk about that. But um, mm-hmm. good money regardless. Mm-hmm. And it was enough to kind of pad my expenses so okay. that my husband didn't kill me, you know, all, also <laughs> in this, I got married. Um, okay. But you know, I was able to contribute to our expenses and whatnot. And then, um, I mean, we were, there was also just so many fortunate circumstances. I had a rent stabilized apartment that I had moved into when I first moved to New York. That was super cheap because back when I moved into it, it was a terrible neighborhood. But in the time that I lived there, the neighborhood completely gentrified. Oh. And so what was the neighborhood? Can you I know, ask? Had, it's Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. Got so it. I specifically lived on the south side of Williamsburg, which Williamsburg as a whole has always – has been, like, gentrified for a fairly long time. But the south side of Williamsburg didn't gentrify until 
pretty recently, like yeah. 10 to 15 years ago. Yeah. So yeah, I, I had a, a little fifth floor walk up three bedroom apartment in Williamsburg in a neighborhood where, you know, when I moved there, there was like sex workers on the street yeah. and open drug dealing. And yeah. like, you know, the glass on our front door of our building would often be shot out. It was pretty yikes. Um, but you know, I was young, I was in school, I was paying $400 a month for a room with two guys. It was a three-bedroom, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so going back to pricing, you know, as as my company grew, basically I started figuring out pricing based on how much money or how much time should this project take to make? Like, is this project going to take an entire day to make? Is this going to take a day and a half to make? Is this mm -hmm. going to take X amount of, you know, time to make? Okay. And then from there, um, we also just did a bunch of market research. Um, somewhere along the way, I realized that pattern makers generally aren't super competitive with each other. When I meet other pattern makers now, I think of them as industry colleagues, not competitors, even uh -huh. if technically they, they are my competitors. Um, but I mean, I refer work to other pattern makers all the time if I'm too busy or if I know that they're better at X and, you know, I'm busy with Y and yeah. whatever. So, yeah, at some point I realized that you can just go ask other people what their rates are and, you know, oftentimes they'll tell you. Um, so that was your market little, research? Yeah. So I just went and did some market research and raised our prices across the board. And, um, yeah, it's it's very... Uh, it's an ongoing process. I mean, even now. So I ran my company for five years. I closed it in um, February of 2018, right after we delivered the Fall Winter 18 collections and moved to Los Angeles. Within a couple of days, I was offered a job. Like I, I closed the company on a Wednesday and I think by Friday I had been offered a job in Los Angeles. It was just like LA on a plate, paid for our move, so easy. And I was going to be working with some people that I knew from New York that were absolutely fantastic. Okay. And um, moved here. And I worked as an in-house staff full-time pattern maker for the first time in my career, year 10. Year wow. 10. Yeah. My first job yeah. was as a senior pattern maker. <laughs> wow. Yep. How um, was that? Was it? What was that change of pace like for you? It was crazy because also LA is just a super different pace. Yes. Generally. Yes. Than New York. And I'm not talking about the pace of life. I'm talking about the pace of the fashion industry. Yes. People actually have work life balance here. Like, they that's breathe. A thing. <laughs> they breathe. Yeah. And like you're not, no one's looking at you sideways if you leave at six. Yeah. No one. It's yeah. totally fine. Um, I'm sure there are exceptions. And in fact, I worked at one company that was an exception to that, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, the work-life balance was definitely really strange and also just not having to hustle because I've become a very fast pattern maker over the years because, um, the faster you make it, the faster you get paid. But when you're an employee, you just get paid every other Friday and that's that. It doesn't matter how fast you make it. So that was pretty strange to realize that I was like zooming through everything. And I, I was only able to realize that because no one around me was zooming. Not to say that they weren't <laughs> working hard. They absolutely were. But yeah, I just was able to really, you know, step back and observe myself in that environment. But yeah. Yeah. So, um, moved to Los Angeles and I, I worked for three different brands as an employee. And then when COVID came along, lost my most recent job, and um, now I'm back out in the world of freelancing. And honestly, I'm really comfortable here. It's fine. 
Yeah. Okay. I want to, I love this. I love that we got through the whole story. Um, there's some things I want to ask about along the way. Um, thanks for touching on the pricing. And I love that you talked about talking to your competition. Um, so I actually have a, a book on freelancing. It's absolutely free. You can download it on my website and I talk about that. Um, and I am, I, you know, my career is freelancing for many, many years and you are, you have to be open, open with your air quote competitors, but they're really your friends because you guys, I guarantee the more freelance friends you have, the more work you will get. You just refer each other jobs all the time and it really becomes a beautiful little circle of life for all of us. Absolutely. The number one way that I get clients at all or jobs is through other pattern makers. Yes. Like, hands down. I love this. I've gotten one job from a recruiter and that was fine. But, um, yeah, through other pattern makers, a hundred percent. Okay. I love um, that you talk about that. And also it's just really nice to talk shop. It is. It's really nice to talk shop with other people. And, you know, I mean, for me, like I said, as a pattern maker, of course, I want to discuss like construction and grain line and yeah, the yeah, yeah. of that fabric. Oh, that fabric was a nightmare. Da, 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 da. Um, it's a, it's a pretty isolating, um, work experience. Like even if you work in a busy office, you're usually like headphones on focused on your work, like living in your own mind. And so it's really nice to like, just talk to other people. And yeah, most pattern makers tend to, in my experience, tend to be really happy to talk and also to, especially to talk about those, what brands are terrible or who ripped you (laughs) off on an invoice or whatever. So you know where to avoid. Yeah. We'll get back to this episode in 20 seconds, but real quick, did you know that the SFD podcast is sponsored by you? We don't interrupt your listening experience with ads and instead rely on your support. There are three ways you can do that. One, tell a friend about the podcast. Two, sign up for the email list at soheidi.com slash email. That's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I dot com slash email. Three, write a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for supporting the SFD podcast. Now back to the episode. Um, okay, so so that's a great point. And I really, you know, dear listener, people out there, I, w- I really want you to take that home because I think there's a lot, a lot of value in that mindset of like making friends in the industry, um, specifically friends who are doing the same line of work that you're doing. Um, you said something earlier in the interview, you were talking about how you'd been in the industry for five years, you were permalancing, um, and you were doing your freelance stuff on the side. And you said that there was still like a learning curve in terms of like, oh, I'm, this thing might take me all day, but it might take a senior pattern maker only two hours. So I can't charge my client for all day when it could be done in two hours. Um, but in your five years in to having, being a full-time pattern maker, essentially pattern making mm-hmm. 40 hours a week, um, and there's still a really big learning curve. And I, I want to touch on this because I think um, a couple things. I think that one, it's really, if you're not in the industry, it's really underestimated what it takes to become the amount of learning and just the amount of hours of doing and doing and doing. It's a fine art to get to like a really, really good stage. A really, I don't, I don't know what the right terminology is, a stable stage of like being a senior pattern maker. We're like, I am really, really efficient now. And obviously you're always learning. That's true with any career, any skill, Um, but I think that one, it can, people can maybe undervalue, like, let's say if you want to start your own brand, you can undervalue maybe the price that the pattern maker wants to charge. It's like, no, it took them 10 years to like really, really build up the foundation to be able to do this. And then second, um, I think some people think that, oh, well I can sew 
a homemade pattern from Joanne's fabric, you know, mm-hmm. a Vogue pattern or something. Um, so that means I could probably make the patterns and send them to the factory to make my sample. And it's a whole different animal. So I want you to talk a little bit about the learning curve and the foundation and how long it really takes to build up like those phenomenal skills to be that, you know, I don't know if you, I know they call like a master tailor a master pattern maker or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but can you just touch on like the refinement of your skill set and how, and the, the length of time that it takes to get there? Yeah, sure. So I felt like at about year eight, I knew everything. I felt like I was great. I was good to go. And then it started going back downhill again, where I was like, Oh God, I don't know how to make anything. Everything's terrible. Um, and I, I, that's, it wasn't getting worse. I was just getting more aware of what I didn't know. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely have seen a lot of people say like they're, you know, they're graduating from fashion school or they're getting ready to go out and start a brand or whatever. And they're like, I just don't feel like I have all the skills to do it. And nobody does. Mm -hmm. Nobody, Mm -hmm. you know, fashion school is just meant to get you going. It's not meant to be the complete primer on, you know, spit you out and you're this fully formed being. Yeah. I mean, I definitely feel I definitely feel very, very competent now. I'm at year 14 nearly, and mm-hmm. um, I feel very, very competent. I've worked on every category you can imagine except for wetsuits was brought up to me the other day. I've never made a wetsuit. <laughs> um, there's some, yeah, there's some very technical, like, welded seaming technology. I don't know what the seam allowance is on that. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I definitely felt like it's... T- at this point, I feel really very competent. It took me a very long time. Um, and I think that that's normal and people need to expect that. And if there is a designer out there that, you know, doesn't understand the pricing of a pattern maker, why it's so, you know, generally such an expensive step, I encourage them. Yes, please get a pattern making book and follow directions and make yourself something. Mm -hmm. I really encourage you to do it because you will see that it is incredibly hard. The drafting, if you're good at like following directions, if you're a baker, then you can definitely like follow the directions and make the draft and it'll be no problem. But then once it's the pattern's made, sew it up and do the fitting that is where the real skills are. Because the fact is, is that, you know, I feel great about my patterns, pattern making skills coming out of school. And that's when I started fitting. Because in school, we were only doing like half fittings and, you know, muslin or paper fittings. And in the industry, you're often doing, you know, production fabrication protos with full trims or sub trims or whatever. And you really see differences and things act and behave and, and fit. And, uh, there's, you know, a lot of different strategies for resolving fit issues. And that is, I think my fit experience is what makes me valuable. It's not Mm. my pattern experience. It's my fit experience. Because the thing is, is that the fit of your product is your product. If your product doesn't fit well, everyone who tries it on is going to know. And some people are fine with that. People walk around with terrible fitting clothes all day long (laughs) and they're either oblivious to it or they just don't care. I mean, I have things that fit badly and I'm like, well, it's a plain black shirt and I just need a plain black shirt and I don't have time to buy a new one. Yeah. Um, God forbid I would actually make my own, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, but yeah, no, I think that the fit is my fit experience is really the thing that's most valuable to me as a pattern maker. Um, well, that and I know how to take it beyond the pattern. But, um, but yeah, no, the 
I mean, the process of mastering your craft, it takes, I'm going to say decades and you just need to accept it and like move with it. And the biggest thing that I found is that whenever I've, I hit a point of tension where I don't know how to do this or this makes me nervous or whatever. I just attack it straight on. I go right, right into it. So my education was primarily in, um, like calculated flat drafting, not a whole lot of draping. I did some draping courses, but they were really just elective. And I remember that, you know, at some point in running my own studio, we got a bunch of styles where I was like, I am going to have to drape these. It's ridiculous to flat draft these. And, you know, I just really leaned in and immediately was like, oh, these came out really well. That was actually not hard. Cause once you understand grain behavior and shapes and what the shapes should be and appropriate ease and things like that, it, it's really not rocket science at all. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I only realized that because I basically accepted that I was going to spend a day swearing at the dress form and <laughs> figuring it out and reading books and referencing and watching videos online and stuff and just dive right into the thing that causes you like pain. And that's the only way to solve it. Yeah. And, you know, push your skill forward. I mean, what is that, that phrase? Um, I'm going to butcher the phrase, but the only way to get out of your comfort zone is to get uncomfortable. Like you actually have to be okay with getting uncomfortable because that is how you push yourself. That is how you get better. Yeah. It's something like, and I'm going to butcher it too, but I've kind of heard it like the only way to get around the fires to walk through it sort of thing. Precisely. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, Okay. I love that. I love that you just hit it face on. And sometimes I think that what can happen is those moments you approach them. At least this is how I, I, I kind of go through some of those same processes. I approach them by initially like freaking out for a while. And then I'm like, okay, let me get grounded. I know this, these are the resources and the tools and the knowledge that I have. I'm going to dive in, see what I'm missing. I'll figure out what I'm missing. And you crawl through it. And then you come out the other side and you're like, okay, look, I had that. Like I knew this 50% and then I figured out this 30%. And then I called up a friend and they helped me with that 20%, whatever. And like, then you get through it and then you're like, okay, I can do it. And the next time it becomes a lot easier. I think a lot of people mm. can get stuck with the, like, uh, like just paralyzed, it, almost like physically you can become paralyzed. You're like, I can't do Definitely. it. And you just freeze. Definitely. Yeah. I was going to say the the truth is, is that I don't just dive. I actually freak out first and then I <laughs> yeah. avoid it for a while. Yeah. 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 Like if I can, but I mean, I think that the fact that essentially my first real grown up job in the industry was running my own company. Yeah. Um, and you know, I was responsible for everything at the end of the day. I did have a number of employees that I could lean on and I would, I would be like, do you have a solution for this? <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> but, um, but, uh, yeah, I definitely, I, I had to get everything done at the end of the day. My name was on the door and my reputation was on the line yeah. and I just had to push through it and figure it out. And so, yeah, freak out, avoid, dive in. That's my process. I love it. I I think you and I operate kind of similarly on that. Um, You've talked about fit a lot. So Mm -hmm. can you – so we have a lot of beginners listening, um, Mm -hmm. people who are maybe in school or they're just really interested in fashion. Maybe they're in a different career um, and a little bit of a lower knowledge base. Can you talk about – some of the fit processes and like you as a pattern maker and then having evolved into having that skill of doing the fittings and stuff, like what does that fine tuning look like? Oh my gosh. I don't know if there's much that I can say about it. It's, um, it's such a tactile skill. Um, I feel so 
I feel like most fit comes in, like if you've got the mechanics of the pattern right, like if all the pieces are in the right place and you understand how it's sewn, even though you're not the one sewing it, so you can keep that in mind, um, what you're then looking for is drag lines. So I do this thing where on my Instagram story, I didn't actually do it this past fashion week, but on my Instagram story, I take screenshots from the Vogue Runway app and I post them on my Instagram story and I comment on fit and construction and pattern making, oh, like that innovative is pattern so techniques fun. and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's super dorky. It's no, like, it's so fun. I love this. It is deeply, deeply my thing. And the funny thing is, is that when I started doing it a couple of years ago, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to turn off all of my friends that don't work in fashion. They're going to be so <laughs> annoyed and weirded out by this. And it turns out it's hilarious because it's like, it's actually like the fashion people do like it. They, they really enjoy it for the most part. Um, but the people who really respond to it are the people that don't work in fashion at all. It's like my friends from high school who are like housewives <laughs> and stuff. And they're like, Oh, I have so many opinions about darts. That dart is too long. It's given her a nipple. Oh da, my da, God. Da, da, da. That's <laughs> because so I've talked funny. about this stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously with fit, there's like, you know, typical construction mistakes. Um, that often happen when we're talking about like something like, you know, the runway shows, it's not happening because those pattern makers don't know what they're doing. They absolutely do. It's happening because things are rushed because the designer was like, we need three more looks and it's tomorrow. <laughs> and so, you know, they're staying up until midnight and making three more looks and, and busting them out. And there's no time to go through a proper prototyping process. They're just, you know, scrapping together a pattern throw it onto the sewing line and get something made to photograph and they'll clamp it and scrimp it and scrunch it and deal with it. And we'll fix it in pre-production. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think it's totally fair to be like, why is there a giant sleeve cap error on a Versace runway? That's crazy. They have the best talent in the world. Yeah. Um, although maybe that's not the best example because the Italians really never mess up sleeve caps. <laughs> Americans and Brits do a lot. Oh, this is funny that you know this minutia. <laughs> oh, totally. Um, so, yeah, as far as fit, I mean, ah, I don't, yeah, I don't really know what to say about, like, I mean, everyone knows why fit is important because sure. if something fits well, it feels wonderful to wear. Um, but there's just, you know, there's so many different factors that go into what makes a garment fit well or fit badly. Some of it is cut. Some of it is fabric behavior. Some of it is sewing skill level, you know, sewing. I often tell clients who aren't from the fashion industry that a sewing machine is very roughly equivalent to a stove. So I could buy the ah. fanciest stove in the world and that does not make me a good cook. Yeah. I need to know ingredients. I need to know techniques. Uh -huh. I need to have bright pots and pans. I have to have attachments and things. Sewing oh. is hand skill. So um, smart. Yeah. It's a great analogy. And, you know, those industrial sewing machines, there is robotic sewing does not exist. Every single thing in the world is sewn by a person. Yes. I mean, it technically exists. They're sewing bath masks with it, but they're just, it's, it doesn't really exist. Right, it's right. not um, financially feasible at all. Capitalism will always give it to people. Um, but yeah, so sewers have skill levels and a sample maker, which is the first sewer that most designers are going to be interfacing with is one of the highest skilled people in the sewing world 
because they understand, you know, because the other thing is, is that fashion is made on an assembly line. So you can take lower skilled people and having them sew one very straight seam Mm -hmm. and that's okay. But Mm -hmm. a sample maker who's going to make your entire silk dress from soup to nuts in an afternoon, she's got to know how to cut silk, handle silk, you know, tension her machine for it. She's got to have the right size needle because none of that's going to be set up for her like it would on a factory production line. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, know how to handle all the different seams and finishes and things. Um, but, oh, I got off track. We were talking about fit. No, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Um. It's really interesting. So I'll, I'll kind of give you the, like, where my question was coming from because it kind of came, sure. like, and from a selfish perspective, it came from, like, my own curiosity. So mm-hmm. um, my career has been in design. And honestly, in hindsight, if I did it all over again, I would do technical design and pattern drafting. Um, like, I, I don't even think – I didn't even really realize that was a job at the beginning. Um, yeah. Right? A, a lot, lot of people, people don't. don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so design is kind of what I fell into um, through a roundabout way because I didn't even go to fashion school or anything. But um, I realized like later on that I'm a much more technical person. I love number. I love spreadsheets. I'm a total nerd. Um, And I look at, you know, fittings and I'm like, okay, this is fitting weird. That's all I can say. I don't know like, oh, well, we need to take a quarter inch out here or this seam needs to be lowered or whatever the thing, or maybe it's just the tension on the sewing machine. And that is so fascinating to me that, you know, your job and your expertise as a pattern maker is like not only the physical paper and the pattern and or the draping, but then being able to look at the garment on the human body and being able to diagnose how to Mm -hmm. solve the problem that you see. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's pretty crazy stuff. I feel like I learned most of it just standing in fittings with more senior pattern makers okay. um, and hearing their comments. But one thing I will say, um, so for people shopping, this is like a very easy way to start assessing actual fit quality. For people shopping, you're in a fitting room, you're trying things on, put the garment on your body, look at it. Don't look at your face. Don't look at your hair for God's sake. <laughs> just look at the garment on your body and see if there's any drag lines. Now a drag line is where the fabric is tugging. So I'm a straight size six woman, but I've got a really large bust line. So I'm always going to have drag lines around my bust because nothing is cut for my bust. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's fine. And I know that, but like when I get into a fitting room, I will look for where are the drag lines and they're always around my bust because I'm wearing it too small in my bust, or I just need to find a different style or, you know, size up and have it tailored down in the waist and the hip. Um, but yeah, so you got to look for those drag lines and, and assess like those drag lines are fit problems and they point to the fit problem. So if you've got a problem in your sleeve cap, you're going to have a drag line pointing somewhere either to the sleeve cap or Uh, on the sleeve cap, across the sleeve cap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So drag lines point to the problems Sometimes they're really, really minor. It's just a slight ripple in the fabric and it's no big deal. And sometimes it's like a huge fold in the fabric. Okay. So I would say look for drag lines and assess, are you willing to deal with this? Like if there's a bunch of drag lines on the crotch of your nice work trousers, don't deal with that. That's not that working. pant is not good. No. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's because of your specific anatomy but maybe there's some pattern errors in that too. Okay. And I mean, you know, obviously there is no such thing as a sample or a standard size chart or any, you right. know, we come in so many different shapes and variations. Right. Everyone's going to have fit issues. That's normal. But look for drag lines. 
The other thing that you can do in like, you know, the fitting room at the shopping mall is you can look at the side balance. So turn, like if you're wearing a dress or a pair of pants, turn to the side and look at the side seam. Does it hang straight down the body or does it like dip back at your butt? If it dips back at your butt, that means the back of those pants needs more fabric and the front needs less. Or sometimes I feel like I've had that problem with like cheap t-shirts where the fabric was just like not cut right on the grain. You can just tell it gets right. twisted, right? Right. You know so what t-shirts I'm talking a, about. Like, yeah. yeah. And jeans do that too. But that's yeah. not actually a pattern making issue. That that's is just a, a, that's a, that's a production cutting issue. Okay. Gotcha. So in production, how they cut fabric, sorry, I'm going a little off track here, but no, it's fine. people are always interested in this. Yeah. How fabric is cut in production is they ply it. So they roll it out on these giant long tables and they ply it up. So then they put, they roll out basically a printed out copy of the pattern on top. That's called the marker. And that has all the pattern pieces for that fabric, just kind of like puzzled in as tight as possible in every size. And then they put weights on it and they use these crazy upright saws to cut them out. Yeah. And they're cutting like, I mean, I don't, how many layers, like a hundred plus? Well, and that's what, that's really depends. So that is one way where a company can cut or increase their profit margins. Mm-hmm. So a luxury brand, you know, Marc Jacobs is probably not cutting any more than 20 layers ever, okay. unless it's like a very stable fabric. Because the more really layers, the more around. room for error. Right. Well, and what ends up happening is if you have like a mass market brand that's, you know, making tens of thousands of units of every single style they make because they're, you know, stocking it globally. Yeah. Those cut piles are going to be huge. Huge. So, and what's going to happen is as they cut it, the goods on the top are going to shift from the goods on the bottom. Yes. And that means that things will get cut out of grain. And if your fabric isn't on grain, then it'll twist around the body. But that's why your t-shirt is $6. Right. Um, And your your jeans that twist around the front of your calf, that's a cutting error. And it's because, Uh, and that's also why you can go into a place like Levi's and try on three of the same exact style and size (laughs) of jeans and they all fit different. It's because they were (laughs) different places in the cut pile. Yeah. So this is really, I mean, you're talking to people, you're saying, you know, you're in the dressing room trying this on, which I think is important. But mm-hmm. also I think this is really important because a lot of people are sitting are working on their own brand. So when you right. guys are doing fittings with your pattern maker or your sample maker or whoever it is, um, like these are the things to look for. Yeah. So I would say first thing you need to look for is, um, well, no, first thing is look at the side seam balance. Okay. Like is everything hanging straight? Okay. Then look at your, your, um, primary fit points. So your bust, your waist, your hip, are they level? Is your hem level? Um, you know, just go through those main fit points and then look at drag lines and gapes and, you know, obviously assess if something's like way too tight or way too small. Um, but yeah, I mean, as to, as to determining what changes need to be made in the pattern as a result of the fit problem, I mean, there's so many different options. And like I said, I learned most of it just standing next to more senior pattern makers and fittings for, for years, years and years and years. Years, 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 yeah. And I mean, I still learn things all the time. Sure, of all course. All the time. It's one of my favorite reasons for talking shop with other pattern makers is like, how did you make that work? Yeah. But at least, I mean, at least this gives people the tools to look at it and say, something's going on here. 
mm-hmm. don't need to know the answer of how to solve it. They say, this is weird. This, what's going on? There's drag lines or the, the side right. seam is twisting something. They can at least right. say there's a problem. Right. Or like, I've got a center back hem dip, but then I also have a center back waist seam dip. So is the problem that my back bodice is too long and that's making the waist seam dip and the uh, hem dip? Yeah. Or is, or, and I just need to lift up that back bodice a bit, or is it that I've, I've got a little bit too much in the back bodice and a little bit too much in the back skirt length? Like uh, you just have to go through and really diagnose it one tiny bit at a time. Okay. Oh, this is so oh, – I could nerd out on this forever. I knew I should have done pattern <laughs> making and technical design. Like, I, get, I light up when I talk about these things. Like, I get so fascinated and really curious. Yeah, no, it's – it's. I mean, if you're, a, if you're a baker rather than a, you know, an artistic cook, then pattern making and technical design is definitely your world. And it also pays better than design it, for it the most part. It pays a lot better, yeah. Um, you know, a senior pattern maker, a staff senior pattern maker is ob- – oftentimes the highest paid person in the room short of the design director. Okay. You didn't really sell us on that though during your first five years when you were bartending and running your business on the side. Yeah. I mean, I didn't make any money at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I was really just trying to survive. And even when I was running my own company, honestly, I didn't make any money. I was, we were really successful. We were super busy. We were always adding new clients season over season, working with lots of big respected brands, um, got some really great opportunities, but the thing is, is that the margins were just so tight. I made a lot of business mistakes cause it was my first business. Uh-huh. Really classic ones. Um, like what? Um, hiring people who could have been contractors mm. or hiring before I was ready. Mm-hmm. I hired a lot of people or pretty much everyone that I hired was early career. Mm. Um, and in retrospect, it's actually cheaper to hire somebody who really knows what they're doing. Mm-hmm because they can get a lot more work out a lot faster. And that's absolutely no disrespect to any of my former employees. I love them all to death and they were all amazing and we all learned together. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And then just also, you know what, here's the number one thing that I did wrong in my business. And I think a lot of business owners do this, especially first time business owners. So I think this really should stand as a clarion call for other designers starting their brands is that I was shy about the numbers. I was like, I'll figure that out on Saturday. I'll (laughs) reconcile my bank account later. I don't know all the tax deductions. I guess I'll ask the tax guy when I go see him. I just didn't like dive in head first. Like how do I calculate profit and loss? Like how do I do this? How do I do that? How do I, you know, assess all these costs in reality Um, I know that in fashion, especially in product development, you know, there's all these books and guides about how to start a fashion brand that tell you to write a business plan and research your customer and da, 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 da. And then they say, find a manufacturer and get the product made. And that's like the understatement of the century. Yeah. Um, because that's like such a complex and difficult process. And I mean, I'm talking to a brand right now who's gone through five factories in the last year, trying to find a product development partner. I believe it. Yeah. Um, and they've had to pay for every single one of those interactions. I mean, I haven't actually spoken with her about it yet, but it's, it's just not uncommon at all to find a pattern maker or to find a factory that says that they'll do your pattern making or find, you know, some sort of situation and have it all go sideways or have it not work for you for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, the big mistake that I made was I didn't really, I didn't dive into the money part of it. Um, we kind of worked on our receipts in, receipts out basis, and that that was fine. But 
basically at the end of the day, like I was never going to be able to pay myself a proper wage. And also I was going to have constant employee retention issues because I would hire people straight out of school, give them their first job, which I was very happy to do. Um, and then after a couple of years of them working under me and getting all the skill and, you know, experience, then they would go get a job with somebody else earning double. Um, and that, you know, it's fine and that's fair because that's all I could afford to pay them. But at the same time, like, that's not a good way to run a business. You need to be able to, your employees need to be able to grow with you if they want to, because I definitely had employees that really wanted to stay with the company, but I just couldn't afford to pay them any more than, you know, whatever crappy wage I was paying them. So would it have come down to like, and this is probably like way too simple of a solution, but the first thing I think of is like, well, you just need to be charging more. Definitely. There were so many things that I wasn't charging for at all in the name of sales. So there was so much handholding and consulting that I was doing uh, essentially for free yeah. in the name of sales yes. that now I wouldn't do at all. I mean, I still, I love to talk shop and I love to talk about the industry and I love to work with, you know, new designers who are really excited and passionate about what they're doing and be like, this is how this process works. And they're like, wow, that's amazing. Thank you. It gives me a lot of good vibes to be able to, you know, plug people into information that's really hard to access. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I'm, I'm much more shy about it now. And I'm definitely not going to sit down with you every single time you come into my office and like explain to you how a different part of production works, um, for no additional cost than like, you know, whatever you paid for your one pair of pants that I'm developing. Yeah. I, I'm glad you touched on this because it comes up a lot. Um, and I talk about it a little bit in my book on freelancing and I, we go through it even more. I have a full course on being a freelancer in the fashion industry. Um, and people ask all the time, well, do I need to charge for like meetings and phone calls and stuff? And I'm like, you're charging hourly. So first of all, if you're charging a project rate, that's fine. You're going to learn hard way how to do that. Cause that's really, really mm-hmm. freaking hard. Um, mm-hmm. but that needs to be bundled in like, you know, you allotted like roughly three hours for phone calls and then you kind of backwards engineer your pricing. But if you're charging hourly, like, yes, you have to do that because no one's mm-hmm. paying you for that time. And so mm-hmm. if you like, there are clients that will suck you out of like three hours a week on the phone. And I don't, I say suck like that comes off very, very negatively. And I don't want it to have that tone and it probably was a bad choice of words. But, um, and like you said, like it's fun to top shop and it talk shop and it's fun to like share all those resources and those ideas and to kind of guide someone down the process. But at the same time, that's your time, that's your knowledge and that you need to be compensated for that. You're a business and that time is money. Definitely. And like, I mean, even if you regret using the word suck, the fact is, is that like, having an intensive discussion with somebody is not a neutral activity. It, it is does very take, draining. <laughs> it does take your resources mentally. I mean, yeah. I know that the other day I had a great fitting with a client and then I came home and I crashed. I took a nap. I yeah. was like, oh my gosh, I'm yeah. used up Yeah, because I was, you know, I was so on and I was so in and I mean, that was the fitting and that's fine. But if that was just like a free conversation with a potential client, that's like, a that's lot. a really big give. Yeah. And so that was one of the mistakes that I made in my business was okay. that I was, um, yeah, I was giving a lot of information and access to my clients in the name of sales. The thing is, is that, you know, product development and factory environments tend to not be very customer service focused at all. Right. <laughs> like, no, I know. <laughs> like at all. Yeah. Like, people expect, you know, customer service in places in the world. And that's just not one place where you're going to get it at all. Yeah. And I think that the, an important thing for designers to understand is um, it's really important 
to under to try to understand the business model of the business that you're asking to engage. And the fact is, is that like factories specifically, but even product developers, um, pattern makers and stuff, their business model is volume. And if you're coming to them with, you know, one thing or three things, then you're not an important customer to them. And that's just that. And it's not it's not anything against you. It's just, that's how it is. And, you know, factories aren't first come first serve their biggest invoice first, and they always will be because they have to pay their bills and the biggest invoice gets made first. And so if, you know, you're the dinky dress brand that's making six styles, they're going to get to you if they said they'll get to you, but you know, you're going to get pushed down the line. So the other thing too, that I'll tag onto that is the, the whole PETA thing. So I don't know if you've heard of PETA pain in the ass. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like you do not yes. want to be the PETA client. And no. I think that a lot of designers, um, or, you know, these startup brands, they don't mean to be a PETA, but they're a PETA because they Definitely. go into these situations. They don't know anything. Um, so I, we, no, we didn't record that. So just quick side note, Shiloh and I were chatting before I hit record and she's like, yeah, I've listened to a couple episodes. The show's great. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you've listened to, because I have a lot of guests come on the show who have not ever listened to one single podcast episode. And I'm like, that's really weird to me. You would think that if you're going to be on a podcast, you would listen to the, to at least one interview before you go on. So you know what the interview is going to be like. And it's the same, mm-hmm. but it's surprising how many people don't. So it's the same I'm making a point here. I promise we'll get to it. Um, It's the same when it comes to, like, you know, working with a factory or something. And that's the easiest Mm -hmm. example, I think. Startup designers, like, I've got this great idea. How do I find a factory? Yeah, they haven't done any research. They will call the factory up blindly, and then they're just kind of like, they expect this handheld silver platter customer service experience, which is not what you get in these type of environments. It's just the way the industry works. So you have to do the legwork to do your research first and learn, listen to this podcast, um, you know, read books, talk to other people. Um, and it, it takes some time, but you have to go in a little bit knowledgeable. Otherwise you are that PETA customer and either you're not going to get taken care of, which is why factories don't email you back. You're probably emailing tens and twenties and thirties of factories. They're not emailing you back or you're going to pay for it because they're going to add like a 30% PETA fee onto your invoice. Like this is a real thing. Yeah. Oh, no, I definitely charge more to people who are pains in the asses. Totally, right? Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> um, yeah, the other thing, I mean, in fairness, I think a lot of times when people say, you know, research this, they think like, oh, just go on Google. And there's really nothing on the internet. People think everything is on the internet. There is very, very little on the internet about like meaningful resources for manufacturing and how that process works. And oftentimes people will come across like, oh, some full package producer, some all-in-one factory, but like they don't understand that factories are category specific, but they're never going to tell you what their category is because they'll just say yes to everything. Yeah. And also like if a factory truly is, you know, all encompassing on one place, then their minimums are way too high for your brand new brand. They just are. Yes. You need a worker owned sewing workshop who's willing to sew your five things not some giant all-in-one factory. But I mean, that's amazing that you've got all those resources on your website because that that kind of information is very, very hard to come by. I think that the number one way that most people can research is just by talking to other people. Mm-hmm. You know, I hear a lot of people talk about networking and the importance of networking. And I just want to like, this is something that I would always say to my interns and my mentees and stuff. All networking is, is meeting people, being nice to them, 
and staying in touch with them. That's yes. all it is. Yes. If you're a fashion student, you need to network with your classmates. Yes. So look at your classmates and figure out who are the people that are the most talented. You know exactly who they are. You absolutely, if you're in fashion school right now, you know exactly who the most talented people are. You need to be friends with them yes. and stay in touch with them. Yes. Because most people get jobs through their friends and their colleagues in the industry. Yes. And that is networking. Networking is just meeting people and staying in touch. Oh my you know? God. Yes. That's all it is. And then, you know, you can call people up. I called somebody up the other day and I was like, hey, I've got a client looking to do this and, you know, weird embroidery method. And I have never done that. Do you have any resources on a vendor for that? And she was like, oh, totally go to this place. I worked with, you know, this XYZ vendor when I was with blah, blah, blah brand before I even met you. Yeah. And, you know, that is what networking is for, is to call people up and ask them, like, how much should I charge for this dress that I've never made before? Or, you But don't know, only call them once every three years when you need the thing. <laughs> no, definitely. Definitely. You have to maintain the relationship. And, yeah. I mean, that can just be as simple as, like, following them on social media I know, and just commenting like on their posts here and there. Comment on a post, like, every month or every couple months. It's so simple. And I think – I love that mm-hmm. you brought this up because I talk about this very, very extensively in all of my content. I have a whole book on finding your dream job and it drills down to networking and it's like it's not even networking it's making friends and having conversations and then just pinging them every once in a while maybe you're just saying hi maybe you're commenting on how cute their hair looks what and their instagram post maybe you're you saw this cool article that you thought would be really relevant to them and you forwarded along like just Mm -hmm. these tiny little touch points and then when you Mm -hmm. need the thing they're going to be there for you and they're happy to do it Absolutely. The other thing is, is that, I mean, I know a lot of people love the idea of finding a mentor, but they just, they don't know what to do Yeah. about finding a mentor. Will you be my mentor? <laughs> that I've never had anybody ask me, will you be my mentor? But you know what I have had people do is I've had particularly, you know, I've got a crop of mentees, um, that are all, all former interns of mine. So when I was running my studio in New York, I had an internship program and to my great shame, it was an unpaid internship program, which I would not do again. Mm-hmm. But at that point in time, we absolutely didn't have the money. And also unpaid internships were just super normal in New York. I know. But I was very cognizant of the fact that I wasn't paying them because I had had a bunch of unpaid internships that were, you know, varying levels of useful. Yeah. And so I really worked my ass off to like truly develop a curriculum and actually teach them things about the process. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm sure that if somebody wanted to dig up a former intern of mine who was like, yeah, I didn't get much out of it, they could. But I know that if I needed like nine character references right now, I could easily get them. And the reason why is because, I mean, I got a text this morning from a former intern of mine about an apartment issue because we're friends now. We just talk all yeah. the time. Yeah. But um, one of my interns, her internship finished and she's starting a brand um, and she'll just text me and be like, what do you think of the strike off? Like, how do I deal with trademark stuff? She'll just text me and ask me questions. And I'm like, Oh, totally. Blah, blah, blah. And I mean, I brought her with me to jobs. You know, uh, there's a couple of different mentees of mine that I've actually brought along, but they didn't essentially I've mentored them, but they never asked for it. They just started asking for my advice. Yeah. What do you think? Can, you know, when you have time, I know you're really busy. Can you take a look at my portfolio and tell me what you think of it? Yeah. Like take a look at my resume and tell, let, let me know what you think of it. That said, 
these people know me because they've worked for me. So they know that I'm going to tell them the truth. I'm going to be like, your resume looks terrible. Like it's a mash of words. You need to go buy like a PDF made by a graphic designer off Etsy and like redo this shit. It's yeah. awful. Yeah. <laughs> and I've, I've said that before. Um, but then, you know, I mean, that's just my personality is that I'm, I'm very straight shooter, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that networking is, it's so, so critical. You have to have relationships. If you do an internship or you get a job or you freelance somewhere, meet the people that you're working with and connect with them and not just on LinkedIn. Um, but like on other social media, if, if it's, if it's not weird, obviously don't force it, but if it's not (laughs) weird, it's never weird to add someone on LinkedIn. In my experience, I had people that I don't even know at all and have never met. And I'm like, Ooh, you're a pattern maker at some brand in England that I'm a fan of. I'm going to add you because I want to see what's going on with you. And then sometimes they're really excited to like nerd out with you. Totally. Yeah. Which is my favorite thing. Yeah. 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 I get <laughs> Let's that. talk about drag lines. I love it. Oh my God. That's amazing. Yeah, networking is the main way that I suggest designers research. Obviously like Google all you can, but there isn't much out there. So yeah. do what you can. I mean, obviously it sounds like your website's got a ton of resources. I kind of want to download your freelancing guide and learn all that stuff. You I'm should. Curious. Because, you know, even though I've been doing this for a long time, my feeling is, and I I do the same thing where, like, I took a class at LA Trade Tech, which is kind of, you know, the community college technical school that has a robust fashion program here in Los Angeles. Okay. And a friend of mine was like, why did you take that class? And I was like, well, I mean, one, it was a Gerber class. I want to learn Gerber again. I used it eight years ago on a job and I haven't used it since. So I wanted a refresh. But also just like, I love being in a classroom and... I'll take a class and if I can get like one or two hot tool tips out of it or like, you know, even something small, then that's worth it to me. It's, it's a good investment of my time. And I just, I really love even the most like small granular learning I think can really, you know, add to like my productivity and my process and how I approach my work. And yeah, I think that it's, it's just so important to continue learning and yeah. you just never know where you're going to get a really good tip. And you're like, why did I never think of that? Yeah. Oh my God. Brilliant. And then you meet people too. I mean, you know, depending on the, the structure of the curriculum, um, mm-hmm. you know, many online courses have, you know, forums or little communities or something. Um, or, you know, you take that class in person, you might meet someone who can then be in your network. They're really just a Definitely. friend, you guys. <laughs> network is not this big, <laughs> scary thing. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think that the reason why the word network is different from the word word friend is because the point of your relationship is industry based. It's not, I mean, obviously you might grow up, you know, an honest friendship, right? but it's, it's totally fine to call your former coworker from three years ago and be like, Hey, I'm working at this new company and we're hiring somebody and I think you'd be good for it. Do you want to apply? I can forward, you know, I can give you the information. Yeah. They're going to be psyched. It's fine. Like that is your network. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Shiloh, you and I could nerd out on so much. This is amazing. <laughs> um, I used to get out to the West Coast a lot because I'm from there. I'm from San Diego, and mm-hmm. um, I have family in San Diego and in Ventura. So I used to get out there like three or four times a year. Clearly, not this year. Um, no one's going anywhere this I'm year. I'm not going anywhere. It's a real sad state. Um, but one day we'll cross paths and have a coffee, and it'll be great. Or sure. a glass of wine or a few. Looking um, forward to it. Yes, I love it. This has been so much fun to geek out with you. Um, so many different things we chatted about. Where can people connect with you online and, and reach out and 
say hi. Yeah. So I'm available on social media pretty much everywhere um, at just my name, S-H-I-L-O-B-Y-R-D. Yeah. Um, I will warn you that my Twitter <laughs> is just currently me lamenting about the state of democracy. Uh, okay. um, it's Normally it's work stuff. You do Twitter? Of, I do Twitter. Wow. Yeah. I don't meet anyone in fashion that does Twitter. Well, I have a lot of friends who are fashion industry journalists. Oh. Um, I do. I've, I've done some contributing. Like I did some I wrote some pieces for Vogue Business about yes. pattern making for the Paris collections. And I don't know, I've just kind of gotten into a, a bit of a so- social circle with a bunch of different fashion writers and okay. they're all on Twitter. Ah. Um, but also, yeah, I mean, I care a lot about politics and, you know, the climate and stuff like it's that. It's pretty heavy so on Twitter. Yeah. You know, following me on Twitter is a very different experience than following me on, say, Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we will so link to all of them. Yeah, so I'm available on social media. Well, I, I would say all social media, but I'm not on TikTok and I'm not on Facebook. So I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter. Um, I also have a website that's just shilohbird.com, mm-hmm. which is really just a portal for people to contact me for freelance for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some a blurb about my old company and then a portfolio of pattern making work that you can take a look at. There's a bunch of stuff that people will recognize because Amazing. I work for some pretty big brands. Yeah. Um, but yeah. The the Instagram I wanted to ask you earlier, the Instagram stories that you do mm-hmm. where you mark up the, the runway designs. Do you have yeah. those like saved to highlights? I do. And also okay. so I just mentioned, you know, I, I do, did some con- contributions to Vogue Business. Yeah. And actually that came out of those in- Instagram stories. So they oh, cool. saw those Instagram stories and then hired me to to basically do the same thing, but for them, for specifically the pair shows. So I did that for two seasons. Cool. And then um, the editor that I was working under actually left. So kind of nasty. So I stopped. But um, I've got some other things in the works. So yeah. I think it'll come back. I didn't, I didn't have the mental energy to do it this season. Um, I just was in a, a space personally that I didn't have the mental energy to look through all the shows. Yeah, totally fair. But yeah, I look forward to it when, when runway like really, really comes back, yeah. whatever that is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm so looking forward to criticizing, you know, <laughs> twisting side seams and wrinkled lapels that don't have proper interfacing. Looking oh forward to it. Oh my gosh. I lo- and bad <laughs> sleeve caps only from the U.S. and, and Brits, right? For the most part, yeah. <laughs> Paris and um, and Italy tend to have absolutely immaculate tailoring. But okay. you know what? There's some new brands, like some new French startup brands that are really, really cool and making really incredible designs, but their product development team is just clearly like not totally locked in. And that's fine. Or they're just working through the night the minute before to try to get those last three looks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, all of those things get fixed in pre-production. Like yeah. it's, it's no actual insult, but yeah, I have, um, a couple of different highlights saved on my Instagram stories. If people want to go through and, and see me talk about, I don't know, horsehair trim or <laughs> seam finishes. <laughs> I mean, whatever. I'm like literally going to go check it out as soon as we hang up here. So I'm sure other, yeah. I, I, I got to believe there's other people out there that are as excited as I am. <laughs> oh, I mean, I think it's okay. I try to make it interesting. Yeah. I definitely have a voice in it. I really try not to be mean, which I think is so easy to slip into me. Yeah. But um, it does go there sometimes. Yeah. If something's just really garbage, I'll be yeah. like, yeah, what the heck happened oh here? Oh, my God. But um, but at the same time, I mean, I've definitely been that pattern maker that's working at 3 o'clock in the sure. morning in order to make the last style before the thing and – you know, things happen. I know <laughs> there comes a point where you just don't care. You just have to push it out. And but um, you, it's, it's, it's clothing guys. I mean, it's clothing. 
I had someone emailed me once and they said it so brilliantly and it like rhymed, but they were like, it's t-shirts and, and I'm not going to make it rhyme because I don't remember the words, but they were like, <laughs> it's t-shirts and pants, not heart surgery and, and brain surgery or something. And it was like, yeah, it's clothes guys. Like we're yeah. not doctors. We're not saving lives here. We're not. I mean, I think it's, I think that clothing is more important than a lot of people give it credit for. Like ask any cultural anthropologist if they uh, care about the clothing of the, of the cultures that they study. And it's absolutely critically important. Um, it is one of the main ways that we signal our identity and our sense of selves. But at the same time, like we have tons of choice. It's not, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on that note, you know what I always ask at the end because you told me you knew because you listened to the episodes <laughs> all the way through. Um, uh, you're not getting put on the spot here. But um, nope. what is one thing people never ask you about working in the fashion industry that you wish they would? Right. So, yes, as you said, I did listen to a bunch of your episodes of your podcast in preparation. So I am prepared for this one. I have a lot of thinking about it. So this is something that no one is ever going to ask me. They are not going to ask me. Absolutely not. And that is, what is the general scale of money that one would need in order to start the type of brand I'm talking about Oh, starting? And because the thing is, is that people have they'll say that, oh, I have no idea how much it's going to cost to start this brand. I'm just going to, you know, develop these products and see where it goes. But they do actually have an idea of how much money it's going to start. It's going to cost to start that brand. And it's often super wrong, just super duper wrong. And that is to say that making expensive clothes is very cheap and making cheap clothes is very expensive. If you are H&M making $10 t-shirts, you have to purchase millions and millions of dollars of fabric and sewing and tracking and shipping and cutting in order to make that cheap product because it's a volume game. Whereas if you're a custom bridal dressmaker, you probably have to buy maybe $500 worth of goods to make one dress that you can sell for $6,000. Oh, And that's just so important to understand that if you want to start like an affordable luxury, like, no, you can't afford it. Unless you have $2 million, you cannot start affordable anything, but you can start a designer brand. Now you need to make sure that the clothes meet a designer brand quality level, because um, if you've never actually looked at designer clothes and touched them in person, they are different. They're not the same. That's one thing I hear people say all the time is like, oh, well, you know, you're just putting in a name on it. And it's like, no, 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 no. Go to Bergdorf's, go to Nordstrom, go check out the, you know, the Balenciagas and the Pradas. It's not the same as what you get at Macy's. It's just not, it's heavier, it's thicker, it's lined. The seam finishings are different. But the fact is, is that if you're starting say a contemporary brand, which is like, you know, a runway level price point, but not a luxury brand, um, and you start with a 15 look capsule collection, you can do that for probably, I don't know, $50,000, like not a ton of money in the scale of things. That's reasonable. But if you wanted to start a 15 look capsule collection of affordable anything, and when I say affordable, I mean like even like high mass, like J crew price in order to actually hit that price point and ever have your business ever pay you a single dollar, you have to cut tens of thousands of units. Right. So even like an 88 or $98 dress. It's so expensive yeah. to make something that cheap. It yeah. is so expensive because it's a volume game. Yeah. And if you, you can do it, if you can afford all that fabric and all that sewing up front, 
but you probably can't. And people think that like, oh, maybe there's credit, I can get it, and then they invoice me. Like, no, 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 no. The designer has to pay for everything up front, and then they sell it, and then they get paid. So if you sell wholesale, you get paid, what, 30, 90 days after you've delivered it. Right. If you sell direct to consumer, then you get paid, you know, one raindrop at a time. So either way, you have to put all this money forward first. Nobody is going to give you credit until you're a huge brand. And then they'll get, you know, once you're a well-established customer, then you might get some credit line or some wait time on the, you know, production invoice or your fabric invoice. But otherwise you're paying full upfront. Yeah. Yeah. First time, five years of, first five years of a company, you have to pay full price upfront on the spot. Absolutely. And that means that can you afford to buy the goods to make the brand at the price point that you want it at? And most people have no idea. They think a cheap product or an affordable product is going to be somewhat affordable to make. And it's just absolutely not. You you need venture capital money to start yeah. an affordable anything. Right, right, right. But you can start, like I said, you could start like a contemporary brand and, you know, do that out of your savings or your 401k or you know, just money that you scrap together or better yet, if you have some skills, cause say you went to fashion school, you can, you know, try to do as many parts of the process yourself right. as possible to save money. And then just, you know, um, if you can make your own patterns and buy your fabric from jobbers or wholesale vendors, please don't buy your fabric retail. Oh my God. It's so expensive. Oh yeah. I have a whole fabric sourcing guide. You guys do not go to mood. Like, don't go to mood. And don't I go mean, to Joanne. Some people are like, I go to Jan's and buy my stuff. Um, I mean, if you're just playing around at home just to like figure something out, like that's fine. Mm-hmm. But yeah, mood, I think, you know, got so big from Project Runway and people think that like that's where you go to get your fabric. You don't. No, no. You don't I mean, go to any of the front facing stores in the garment district. No, 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 no. They're all, the fabric store you need is on the 12th floor in the back. In the back, and, and you're, like, never going to find it unless you talk to someone who knows how to get you there. Right, and there, there's no actual fabric. Oftentimes, there's just a crappy waiting room full of binders. Yes. <laughs> yes. But um, yes. you just look through the binders, and then they tell you what they've got and when they can have it. And, yeah. you know, you negotiate over sample cuts and da, 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 da. I will say that mood is fine. If you don't know what fabric you want at all, you can go to mood or you can go to Joann's or you can go to a front facing garment district shop and you can buy some things and have them sampled just to wear test and sure, try. Sure, sure, sure. But then you need to know that you're paying triple and you can never get that for production. Right. Like you just can't. Right. And if you do, it'll blow your margin like out of the water. Yeah. So yeah, I think that, um, but I think that understanding the scale is really important. Yeah, that's um, interesting point that no one's ever brought up on the show before. I mean, God, we could do have a whole conversation just about that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel really strongly about it. And it's funny because I, I feel like a lot of people want to start an affordable so-and-so yeah. brand simply because they think that that's going to be more affordable. And like, no, it's not. It's going to well, be affordable for your customers, but not for you. Well, but I think too, so like my first thought um, is, well, it's going to be more affordable for the customer to buy, meaning it's going to be easier for me to sell it. Yeah. But I actually don't always think that that's the case. No, no. I think, I mean, yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. Like, I mean, caveat again, I've spent my entire career in the elevated space, Mm -hmm. like luxury and contemporary Mm -hmm. brands. So I'm definitely not like without a lot of bias here, but Mm -hmm. like, it's not going to be very easy to get a celebrity to wear your affordable luxury, you know, brunch dress line to a press call. But if you've got a contemporary brand, you know, that's like a startup and you're doing 
you know, lookbooks and stuff to start with. And then maybe down the road, you'll do a presentation at fashion week and milk studios in the back room or whatever. Um, you can definitely have a celebrity pull that like, it's pretty easy actually, if your brand is at a certain level of, of perceived prestige. Sure. And so like, that's a really powerful marketing tool. Maybe we should do, I think people would be really interested in hearing about this. Um, maybe we could do another interview if you'd be up for it. Sure. Just to talk about that. Yeah. I've got um, all sorts of thoughts. I have you a do. talk in me. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, this is fun. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm excited. We'll t- We'll keep in touch and I'm going to put mm-hmm. you in my network and, <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll figure out something to, to have another conversation on that because I think it's really fun and I think it would be really fascinating and interesting for people to hear more and myself included to hear more on your thoughts on that. Of course. Cause yeah, it's definitely not a to. space I have exposure to. Um, I was more in the lifestyle, active, affordable price point stuff. Right. And I mean, like, you know, I just want to caveat that, like, when I say that you can't afford to make an affordable thing, like, it's no denigration to affordable things. Like, I own many affordable things. Like, I think that there's (laughs) an important place in the marketplace for affordable things. Yes. It's just that I think a lot of people don't realize how expensive it is to make affordable things. Yeah. I mean, it's expensive to make expensive things too, but you know, like I said, five, $600 worth of goods to make one $6,000 evening gown is a lot cheaper than $50,000 or, you know, $2 million to make, you know, I don't know the to perfect the fitting, scale. yeah, that you need you know, to make the sweats thing. or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. We'll nerd out on this again. I'm excited. Fun. <laughs> I look forward to it. Yes, me too. Well, thank you so much for joining me. On a, It is Saturday morning, you guys. Shiloh got up early and had her coffee to do this. Um, I have a very limited schedule with my eight-month-old, so this is sometimes when we have to do it. So thank you for kicking off your weekend with me. It's been really fun. And uh, I can't wait for everyone to connect with you and hear all the other cool stuff that you're working on. Likewise, it's been great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Shiloh. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Shiloh. That was really, really fun. Thank you to all of you out there listening and all of your amazing reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't left a review yet, it is really, really helpful to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, please take 30 seconds to scroll down on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review if you think we are deserving. They are really valuable. I do love reading those and appreciate if you've already done that. Um, I also want to give a big shout out to my husband, Mark, who handles all the tech and the editing behind the scenes. He makes sure that the audio sounds good and that the shows all get cut and edited together, as well as my right-hand gal, Tara, who is amazing. She does so much behind the scenes to coordinate the guests and make sure the shows get published on time and all the little moving pieces and parts that go on in a podcast. It is a lot more than you guys think. So thank you, Tara and Mark, for your support behind the scenes. Again, thank you for you to you for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you. I uh, will leave you again with a quick reminder that SFD is way more than a podcast. You can check out all of our free resources at soheidi.com slash email. It's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com slash email. Go ahead and drop your information in there and I will send you all of our best stuff for free. Or connect with me on Instagram at soheidi, S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I. Again, I would love to say hi to you there and hear about what you're doing. Thank you guys again and I'll talk to you in the next Successful Fashion Designer Podcast episode.